You're considering starting a master's degree or beginning a major certification. It's a big investment of both time and money. What do you do to increase the odds that it will pay off? In this episode, how to make smarter investments in your learning. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 624. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One of the ways that so many of us work on building our wisdom is through our education, our education informally and the things we're learning each day in our work, but also the formal education that we decide to invest in, advanced degrees, certifications, courses. And many of us have the bias of as much as we can do to invest and spend money on those things, the payoff is going to work out for us. And also, Sometimes we don't tend to think about it as critically as we should. Today, I'm so glad to welcome back an expert to the show who's going to help us to look at how we make smart investments in educational programs. I'm so thrilled to welcome back Jill Schlesinger. Jill is an Emmy Award-winning business analyst for CBS News. Jill appears on CBS radio and television stations nationwide, covering the economy, markets, investing, and anything else with a dollar sign. Jill is the host of the Jill on Money podcast and of the nationally syndicated radio show Jill on Money, which won the 2018 and 2021 Gracie Award for Best National Talk Show. She's a frequent speaker on a variety of topics, including macroeconomic, market, and demographic trends, workplace issues for women and LGBT employees in financial services, and how to create authentic branding. Jill is the author of The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money and her most recent book, The Great Money Reset, Change Your Work, Change Your Wealth, change your life. Jill, always a pleasure to talk with you. I'm so excited to be back with you. This is so much fun. And I promise we won't spend too much time talking about deep dish pizza. Okay? <laughs> Jill, Jill and I have an ongoing debate. You like the New York pizza. I get it. I like the Chicago style pizza. We're just gonna have to we're just gonna have to leave it there on our uh, I have so um, much respect for you that I will leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I listen to your podcast every day. I love it. Bonnie was asking me recently, it was a couple months ago, and she heard me listening to you as I was getting ready in the morning. And she said, why do you keep, why do you listen to a financial show every day? Like, you, you know, you've been listening and reading stuff for years. Like, haven't you heard everything at this point? And I said, well, I mean, yeah, a lot of the things I hear from Jill, like, are things that are not surprising, but I, it's super interesting to me, like, how you look at each person's situation, because you have a lot of callers who, who come on the show and they talk about different things. And, th and there's no like one generic answer for everyone. Every situation's a little different. But that said, there's also some broad brushstrokes that like for me is really helpful to think about money and investing. And education is one of those places where we don't always make the most rational decisions. And so I'm so glad to have you here talking about this. Yeah. And you know, um, listen, I'm a little bit of a voyeur. So for me, the best part of the show is about hearing people's stories. And that's what's always so compelling. And whether it is leadership or business or financial matters, as we all know, a lot of this is emotional. Yeah, And the story, the emotions, what you bring to your backstory, I think that's the part that I love so much. It's really about 
this concept that I can give you the facts on a piece of paper that are exactly the same. And I would have different advice for a different person, depending on how they're feeling about their own situation. And I think that's the nuance and the beauty of what we do, which is we've created a place where people can come and tell their stories and get advice, but we also give them enough room to kind of breathe and say, hey, you know, it's okay if you don't make what is what you think is the most rational or the best financial decision. It's the best financial decision for you. And, and that's what I hope most people come away with, that this moment is not about maximizing every dollar. It's not about being the most efficient. It's like, well, how can I have peace of mind and live the life I want to live? Yeah, indeed. Well, that actually reminds me of a story that I think you talked about on your podcast, and it's in the book as well, about your friend's son, Jimmy. And you open with that story in the book when you're talking about education. I'm wondering if you could share the story of like, what he went through and thinking about what he did next to start to set up his career for the next step. Well, I mean, first of all, God bless Jimmy, which is not his real name, but you know, he has been a serial student for much of his life and, and he had had graduate degrees and a very expensive undergraduate education, very expensive. And he had no debt actually coming out of that. But he also was sort of, I would say, just generally dissatisfied with where he was. And, you know, it's tough for me being a bit of a curmudgeon that I'm like, oh, dissatisfied, you're 27 years old. What do you know? Right. But he was. And this was a really good lesson for me also, which is sometimes you have to trust yourself and the person telling you I'm dissatisfied and don't discount that. So essentially, he said, I'm quitting my job. I'm going back to school. I'm going to this basically like a computer coding boot camp. Mm. And I, I, Dave, I'm sure I rolled my eyes and I was just like, really one of those, like, really, you're going to do this. And, you know, so I had not actually thought too much about coding camp, this, that, and the other thing. And he told me more about it and this, that, and the other thing. And I was amazed that he decided to quit his job. He had done his research. And when he came out of this program, he went from very being quite dissatisfied about his job as like essentially like an urban planner making 75 grand a year. And he was able to land a job in the technology sector. And he was, he is, well, at the time, like 21, spring 21, making $230,000 in salary and stock options. Wow. He did get, have to give a portion of that up to the coding camp because they have a very interesting model, which is you pay a, a base amount, but then they get a percentage of your first year salary. Like oh, I think it's 18%. Interesting. And he said for, and he gave up that for that one year, he gives up a piece of his salary. And I just saw him this week as we talked today. It's so interesting. He said, this really is the best thing I've ever done. It's just almost like, like this whole shift has allowed him to be able to find his way, gain more confidence feel better about his position. He has a wife who's very hardworking. And now he can say to his wife, if you need to do a reset, then I've got us covered now. And yeah. before it, he was never in a position to do that. So it was amazing. I, I have to say, 
I thought it was so radical of him to quit, but I think only by quitting could he actually do the work he needed to do. Maybe quitting put him in the place where he could get this job at the right time. And so it is amazing, amazing the the place that he finds himself today. And there's so many more choices today than there were even a decade ago. And I think that that's the thing that some of the bias that we've a lot of us have had of like, okay, you do a certain number of years, you come out of school, then you go get your graduate degree. That was the path for a long time. It seems to me like a generation ago. If you got an MBA, you were set like in a lot of places as far as your career and your earning potential. And today, there's really a lot of other options, but there's also like sometimes the traditional options aren't the best. And I I grabbed this quote from the book. You write, many times acquiring more education helps us advance in our professional lives, as it did in Jimmy's case. But quite often, it leads us down a costly and time-consuming path. We delve deep into our savings or take-out loans, becoming knowledge-rich and cash-poor. Instead of improving our future prospects, we wind up damaging them. When When you see people going down that route of like, knowledge rich cash poor maybe damaging the long term what is it the kind of things that get them in that place well i mean i i was just speaking to someone this week for our show and i was chatting with a woman who said she was talking about they were young they're married they're getting a little bit of a late start and I was listening to the whole story and I'm like, oh, this actually is not so bad. Yeah, you're getting a late start. You're 38 years old. You just had your first baby. Okay, no problem. And then she goes, and my husband has $150,000 in student loan debt. Mm. And I gasped and I said, what was the degree that he earned? And the degree was some sort of, let me call it a sociology, not psychology, but a social science kind of thing, a degree, by the way, that did his career absolutely zero good. Mm. So he has a profession where he makes a certain amount of money, and now he is saddled with an extra $150,000 in debt. And frankly, if I wish I had been able to ask him, why are you going back to school? What is it you hope to gain? And one of the things that I learned in having these dialogues with people, especially during the pandemic, when I think it's it was a time where people were worried and they thought, I better I have a time now, I have the time to go back to school and do this. There are a lot of questions to ask before you take that plunge. I am not saying a graduate degree is not worth it. All I am suggesting is that we just do not seem to approach education as an investment and see it in a very clear-eyed way. For some people, it is absolutely worth it. And for other people, you, you're ending up with a lot of debt that you have to service for the rest of your life, and maybe for a degree that actually didn't do what you or you didn't think about would do what it has done for you, which is essentially not propelled you. I was thinking about what you just said of that degree not matching up with that family. And I just recently got a message from a listener who said, uh, sent me two two programs and said, here's here's one program I'm thinking about and here's the other one. Which one do you think is better? And without any context of what are you trying to do? Like, what are the skills you're trying to gain? And I, I found myself like, I'm not sure what to even how where to even start with responding to this other than to come back to the big picture of like what is it you're trying to do and i think that leads me to the first invitation you make when talking with people is step 1 is 
identify the precise skills, knowledge, or the credential you want to gain to go back to school and how your career is going to benefit from that. And I, I don't think a lot of people always really take the time to do that. Right. And I think it becomes a de facto, it will be good for me, right? And I think that for for Jimmy, in his case, it was, he he had done this, actually. He had realized that he was going to have to roll his sleeves up and learn this. He didn't go to an undergraduate program that gave him this this leg up or this training. And so he really needed the skills. And he was willing to say, okay, it's worth it for me to be take myself out of the labor force for a year. So remember, he didn't earn the $75,000 he was making. So he's he's losing that. He has to pay for the program and whatever he earns in that first year of work that he would have to cough up 18%, right? So essentially for him, when he was contemplating what it would mean, he was hoping that he would come out of this program and land a job that he believed could pay about $150,000 a year. That was what his hope was. The fact that it was 230 was like beyond his wildest dreams, but at 150, he thought that was fine because I, I coughed up at 150, I would, it would, I would lose the 75 grand that I actually would have earned for that year. The first year of my income would be reduced by, by that 18%. And it works out because then I have the money for the rest of my life. How many people go through that kind of analysis? Mm. And I think that even if you're considering this, I want to go back to school to get an MBA. Many people associate getting an MBA with, I will earn more money. But if unless you go to a top tier program, maybe you won't. Maybe that MBA is not going to do what you actually thought it would do. And I think that these are the kinds of questions, especially for people who don't necessarily need a certain skill. They just are looking for a degree. If you just want a degree, you better make sure that the degree from the institution you're attending will pay off. Yeah. And there's a distinction here between the tuition for the degree certification and the actual cost. And one of the things I'm hearing you say, like in Jimmy's case, like, so there's an beyond the cost of the program, there's the cost of the salary I'm giving up for that time. If you go do the MBA at Harvard or wherever, and you spend however much time, but also then whatever debt that comes out of that, that you're then carrying, there's often more cost than just the, whatever the dollar amount is on the tuition. You know, I tell the story of one of my uh, phone nieces and nephews. I have a lot of friends and relatives in this book, and I changed the name, so don't try to guess who they are. But I tell the story of Janet, who was, she graduated from college in 2016, and she went to a very good school, an Ivy League degree. She had a dual major. It was like economics and some made up other major called science and technology studies, which didn't mean STEM. It was sort of like, STEM light, let's think about it that way, okay? So she came out of college, some marketing, brand strategy, and she just took the GMAT to have it in the can, and she she scored like off the charts. She did really well. But, you know, she was in the world of consulting. She's periodically considering like getting an MBA or not. And the question arose, should I get my MBA? Because the taking a GMAT only lasts that great score. It only lasts for five years. So 
her parents were like, you should totally do it. You're going to get into a great school. This is going to increase your job prospects. And listen, I think that from, from when I heard Janet talk about it, it was really instructive to me because again, I think I come, I'm older than you are, Dave, but like I'm in my fifties. If you could get an MBA from a top tier school, the theory in my world and where I came from is just go get it. Yeah. But then like, go get it. What are you nuts? And what she said was, I'm making 120 grand a year. I really like what I'm doing. Even though my parents really want me to do this, I feel good about, I don't want to be out of the labor force for two years. I don't know what it's going to be when I get out of school. I feel like, I feel like I've really proven myself and I feel really good where I am. And I thought that she kind of said something like to the effect of, do I think I'll make a little more money if I got an MBA from Wharton or Chicago or Harvard or Stanford? Sure. But do I really think it matters because I'm really happy where I am right now? And I kind of don't want to risk it. And I think that for Janet, that made a ton of sense to me. You know, again, we started this conversation with, you have to ask yourself, who is this person? Because maybe for someone else, it would make sense to get an MBA from one of those schools. But for her, no. And by the way, she is so happy and she continues to advance at the company where she has been working. And she feels so happy that she stayed put and she says, maybe I'll go get my MBA eventually. I guess I'd take the GMAT again, but I'm really happy where I am. Yeah. I mean, that's so huge. Like that's what we're all searching for is happiness in our work and fulfillment. And like when we find that, I mean, this comes back to what you said at the beginning of like, this really comes down to a personal decision. Like if you want to go work at McKinsey and and have the big network and make the big salary, like get in the, the NBA at Wharton or Harvard, like, yeah, absolutely. Like that's still the best way to get into that world, right? But uh, on the other hand, Someone who's wanting to start a business, be an entrepreneur, start a side gig, to spend all the money and time to go learn some entrepreneurial skills. Like I find myself often advising people in that situation, like, hey, take that money you would have invested and actually use that to start the side gig. Like start experimenting and trying things out versus like spending a couple years in school where you're not going to have the time or the bandwidth or the funding then to come back and put in your business. And it, it really does vary by person, but it gets it's it's getting clear on like what am I what do I want this to do for me up front? And like right. actually going through that process and also looking like what is the I mean the numbers here do matter. Like what is the job prospect if I get a MBA from Wharton versus if I get a MFA from a different score, if I get a PhD and I'm going into academia, like those, those salary prospects are really different. Yeah. And listen, paying for it matters, right? Even if you have rich parents, someone is footing the bill and you are out of your labor, out of the labor force, not earning money. And I keep thinking, you know, there's a funny thing about lucky and unlucky timing also, right? Because you can say, I was so lucky because I was in graduate school from 2020 through 2021, and I come out in 2022. And if you're in technology, maybe that wasn't so lucky because maybe by the, you know, the fall of 22, all of a sudden tech is rolling over. So I think that the other thing is that if you're paying the bill, if you are pulling out of the labor force and losing that income, that's a big deal. And by the way, if your family is paying for it, that may come with some strings attached. And 
if maybe you have an opportunity to to pay for it yourself, you're eating through your own earnings and your savings. And as you said, especially for someone who thinks that they're entrepreneurial, maybe that money would have been better spent slowly ramping up and building a business. And I mean, I know these are all like almost unanswerable questions, but at least let's ask some of them. That leads me to thinking about one of the other things you talk about in your work is what are what is maybe another option that's cheaper that gets me moving in the same direction or at least most of the way there? And I'm thinking about the teacher you talk about in the book who had the option to go get the master's degree at the really fancy program and spend a lot of money. But at the end of the day, one of the driving factors for her was like, hey, just having a master's degree is like what the district is looking for for the salary bump from a financial standpoint. And like, I'm better off just going to find a a lower mid-tier program that I check the box and I still get the education. But if if that's the primary motivator, that it's just a it's a better financial decision. Yeah, it's amazing to me. Um, I found this out. I have a couple of nieces who are educators, and so. It was fascinating to learn that in many school systems, you do get an automatic pay raise for the life, for your life, if you get a master's degree. And it was really cool, right? But it had, it didn't say, well, if you got a master's degree from Columbia versus Joe's college, it just said a master's degree. And what is so fascinating is that she was accepted into a program that was really essentially for working teachers, not for teachers who wanted to pull out and go to school in the middle of their careers, but were doing it in addition to. And it was really affordable. And she say, I mean, I think it was a fraction. I think it was $8,000 was the total cost for her master's compared to, you know, like 40,000 if she went to a full program for a year and did it full time and and not to mention the the $50,000 of income she'd be given up. And so she was able to get this and it was done and she got the raise, you know, frankly, it's amazing. I'm sure she could have figured out how to afford it, but it was so much less stress. That's the other part that I think we minimize, which is you're going through your career. And when you don't have the stress of carrying a loan or worrying about replenishing your retirement accounts or worrying about how you're going to move money around later to make up for the fact that you took this time out of the labor force, it is much less stressful. And probably when I think about like the things that are debilitating in life, when you start having, you know, a partner and kids, it's that, that financial strain that can really be overwhelming. And so I think that often we'll minimize just how bad that feels later on. Cause in the moment you're like, I got into a great school and you don't think it's going to really be horrible when I have $60,000 in debt and I'm, I'm, and I have to deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the other side, of course, is true too sometimes. I remember uh, years ago, we had a client in the aerospace industry when I worked for Dale Carnegie here in Southern California. And the 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 way it worked is like everyone who was like five, 10 years in the business who was interested in going into management would end up going to an MBA program like either USC or UCLA or one of the other schools, can't remember, which might've been Pepperdine. And it was like, everyone went to one of those three schools. And those are not cheap schools. And yet, mm-hmm. the way the culture of the organization was, like if you did that degree, 
you were kind of on the fast track. And a lot of people that really paid off for, and it was worth even the person who said like, well, I wasn't necessarily thinking of going to Anderson for my MBA, but like, that's kind of the culture of the firm that everyone's doing that and it Mm -hmm. pays off. That was a good decision actually for a lot of folks. Like I'd see people like really have some great things come out of that. And, And I guess that leads me to another question too. And I don't know if you have a sense of this, Joe, but Many of those people at the time were getting some support from the organization, either full or partial, to support mm. their education. I don't feel like I have a good sense of that right now. Of like, what are organizations doing as far as sponsoring graduate programs? Do you have a sense of that of talking to people and people calling on the show? Yeah, I mean, it's so fascinating because in say the teeny tiny world here in New York City, where people are working for big banks, they used to have these robust programs. 15, 20, 25 years ago, where they'd pay for an MBA or they'd pay for some degree, you'd have to maintain at least a B average and they'd pay for half. And and then all of a sudden that benefit was okay, but then it started to get watered down. Then amid the pandemic, when the labor force was really shifting and employees had a lot of leverage, many firms started offering once again, larger tuition reimbursements, the amounts they They kind of said, we'll help you pay for it. I don't know if that's exactly the case right this second as you and I speak. What I do think is many organizations make it possible to advance your knowledge base. It may not be a two-year MBA. It might be a certificate program. It might be that you are going and gaining skills, like if you work at a large technology firm and going to a community college where they have a deal with that college. These, I think, are really wonderful things to do because it's a way to upskill yourself without taking yourself out of the labor force and taking advantage of what the organization is willing to do. Again, time does matter, though. Right. And and so if you are upskilling yourself and that works out great for you, fine. But if you're a young parent and upskilling yourself means that you have to hire help to take care of your kids, maybe, maybe not. Who knows? I mean, that's why so many variables in these situations are at least worth considering. You may end up in the exact same place. You may say, Jill, I'm going back. I'm going to get that degree in blank, fill in the blank. It's an MBA, or maybe I'm going to get the CFA, or I'm going to get a CFP. Maybe it's a designation. Maybe I'm going to sit for the CPA exam. Maybe any of those things. But I sure would like it if people were at least more thoughtful about these questions and also really did say to themselves, okay, what am I trying to get? Well, if I if I become a CPA, that is a big deal. It is a huge deal, right? Yeah. And if I'm working at one of these accounting firms that will sponsor me and pay for it, even better. If I'm working for a financial planning firm or a big financial service company, they're going to pay for me to get the CFP. Great. Go get it. Those kinds of certifications are great and you can take them wherever you go in your career. Yeah. And as you were saying that, I was thinking that it's interesting how often people don't necessarily think, I mean, it gets back to your main point, like do your homework, think about this critically, like maybe think about how does my organization support some of my learning if there's the avenue to do that or to ask ask the question. And I know sometimes it doesn't make sense politically even to ask, but I, I'm struck like when folks come to our academy, which is nowhere near the investment of a master's degree, but not insignificant, many people, when they ask, they find their organizations, I mean, the vast majority of our members get full or partial support from their organizations. And I find people are like pleasantly surprised 
often that, oh, I did, I made the ask and they're they're supporting this 50% or 100%. And if they approach it thoughtfully and think about it from the organization's perspective, it's really interesting how often they, they get buy-in and support in some way, sometimes pretty substantially. Well, it's so funny. It like reminds me of my mother saying, if you don't ask, you don't get. It's kind of true though, right? Like, yeah, yeah. If you say, I, I want to go to this program and they explain what the program is. And, you know, by the way, sending your employee to to Dave's boot camp might be a lot cheaper than getting some baloney executive coach who's really more of a shrink and not really helpful to the organization. So I think that for organizations, they too have to think more critically, what do we want out of our workforce? What is it that we do want? We, we keep saying, like, to me, I feel like there's the simplicity of like, I want someone with a four-year college education. Really? Because a lot of the jobs that said they need a four-year college education, you don't need a four-year degree. You really don't. It becomes this weird hurdle that you have to hop over for no apparent reason. And same thing with an MBA. Like, what do you want? Would I rather have someone with an MBA or would I rather have somebody who has years of experience learning how to deal with clients? I kind of like the client-based person. Whatever you learn in your MBA program, I promise you're going to be able to learn on the job. And that is like exactly what I tell folks when they're applying to the academy is like, this isn't about like the certification or the name of the program. Like, walk through with your employer if you're going to ask for support. Here's the three or four things I'm planning to focus on. Here's the benefit that I'm expecting for the firm. Like map that out, actually get that down on paper, have the conversation, talk about how you're going to follow up and check in. And it becomes more about the actual outcomes and the learning versus just the degree of the certification. And to your point, Jill, like I think I've seen half a dozen articles in the Wall Street Journal in the last year or two on companies, big companies, Microsoft, some of the big tech firms that are now easing off of the requirement for a four-year degree for a lot of positions because they're recognizing that, yes, it's still important for for certain positions, but there's also positions where, hey, I'm I'm looking to someone who's done the coding boot camp, for example, who's got the skill set and also maybe come from an underrepresented demographic that didn't have the, the the funding and the same privilege to be able to afford the fancy degree, but comes to the table with a very similar skill set and in some cases better. I mean, it, it, it there's just a lot of ways to think about this if you're willing to do your homework. You know, it's interesting, though, and going back to the story about Jimmy, the, the, the faux nephew who went to the boot camp, I think if in retrospect, as he looks to at the situation and how everything played out, I think he tipped the scales of the high end of the income because I believe the company looked at his experience and he actually was competing with much younger people. So I know it's weird. I think he was 27 or 28 at the time. And his he was competing with 21-year-olds who didn't go to college. And I think the company kind of said to themselves, hmm, here's a guy who's got a little more maturity and he comes across in his interviews that way. And they kind of picked him out as somebody they thought would succeed, not just as a coder, but somebody they thought could be a manager as well. And I think that's why he ended up nabbing the high end of the income. So I don't want to say that your experience and what you do doesn't matter, but it it, it is the credential plus the experience, plus your personality and how you come off and how you demonstrate what your knowledge base is. And 
do you have the way to convey something around the understanding that you will have to work with people? You're not just, I mean, listen, there are some people who are sitting in a corner and coding, but even they have to interact with other human beings at some point. Yeah, indeed. It comes back to where we started, which is it's really a factor for each person and all the variables. Take the time to do the homework. Think about it thoughtfully. You walk through that in detail in the book. I love the podcast every day. I love the book and the title, The Great Money Reset, which leads me to my last question, which is I'm often asking people, you know, Jill, like what have they changed their mind on in the last couple of years? You've written a whole book with the word reset in it of this time we've come out of in the pandemic and all the changes we've had. As you think about your work over the last couple of years, what's one thing that you've changed your mind on in this? I think I'm a little less didactic about like, this is the right answer. I think there are many right answers. And when I talk to people about their financial lives, I think that I've gotten better of re- at recognizing that you can make the next best good choice for you, that, that we really have to make our lives work with a lot of different things going on. And so one thing I, I think I'm a little bit less black and white about is helping people understand that there's a myriad of options that lie ahead. And when you ask a lot of these questions, you're not trying to come up with the only solution, that there are a few different ways that you can lead, you, that can lead you forward. And there's not just one answer. And just be careful not to put yourself in a situation where it's all or nothing, that there's usually another possibility out there. There's a plan A, a plan B, a plan C. There's a way to get where you want to go with maybe a little bit less risk. And what I think I learned was that it does not have to be you work until you're 67, claim your social security, and you're done, that there are a lot of different ways to get where you want to go. You know, what I can't do for people is figure out where they want to go. What I can do with people is I can help them figure out how to get there. Jill Schlesinger is the author of The Great Money Reset, Change Your Work, Change Your Wealth, Change Your Life. Jill, a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's always great to be with you, Dave. We talk often about personal leadership on the show, not because leadership is about us, but because leadership does start with us. If we are handling ourselves well, if we are disciplining ourselves to do the work and the education effectively, that's going to put us in a better position to be able to serve others. And that comes down to our personal finances as well, too. If we're making good decisions there, not only are we less stressed, we are able to have more bandwidth to do the things in our work that we want to do, but we also have more options for our careers and our organizations. Uh, several related episodes, if you want to dive in more, that I'd recommend. One of them is episode 356, Four Rules to Get Control of Your Money. Jesse Meekin was my guest on that episode. Jesse is the founder of You Need a Budget, a software service product that helps folks track their personal finances, understand where their money's going. Bonnie and I have used YNAB, as it's called, for many years to track all of our personal finances. We still do. It's a wonderful product that helps us to really have visibility on where money's going, how to really plan for our priorities. And in that conversation, Jesse and I don't talk about the software, really. We talk about the principles behind it, whether you use their software or not. 
the principles are universal of how to take those four rules and utilize them to be really intentional about what you're doing with your personal finances. Episode 356 for that. Of course, I recommend also a past conversation with Jill, episode 396, Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money. Jill and I talked in that conversation about her first book where she really looked at uh, the broad perspective of people that she's worked with over the years, the smart and talented and exceptional professionals that she works with that call into her show who have incredible knowledge in so many areas, but like many of us, never received any formal education or training on how to handle personal finances. She, in the book, talks about what are the very common missteps that many smart people make on their personal finances, and we highlight several of those in episode 396. I'd also recommend episode 606, The Way Into Better Conversations About Wealth. Kristen Keffler was my guest on that episode. We talk about her book where she looks at some of the wealthier families in our society and what are the opportunities, but also the challenges they have in conversations about wealth and the dynamics that show up for it. Her work isn't about helping people make more money. It's about helping wealthier families and individuals make better decisions with their money and to follow through on those attentions well. Now, if you happen to be in that situation, that book's going to be really helpful to you and your family. But even if you aren't, and many of us are not, understanding the challenges, the psychology, the obstacles that many wealthy individuals have that are often not talked about is so helpful because many of us, those are the people we work for. Those are the owners of the businesses that we interact with each day. Understanding the psychology of money and how wealthy families and family businesses handle that, I think is really, really helpful for all of us to be able to understand the empathy behind that. Episode 606 for that. And then finally, I mentioned in this conversation with Jill that I'm often encouraging folks when they apply for our academy to seek funding from their organizations. And uh, many of them do receive that support. And perhaps you're thinking about something right now, whether it be a graduate degree or a certification or something else in your learning plan that you'd like to get support from your organization. I aired a while back a 25-minute audio on seven steps to landing professional development funding. Over the course of my career, the last 20 years, I have been supporting individuals and organizations, not only in their learning and development, but also helping to find the resources and the support to make those programs actually happen. It was a big part of my job at Dale Carnegie. In that member cast that I aired a while back, I walked through the seven things that I have seen work really consistently. Many of our Academy members come back and say that that framework was really helpful to them on being able to make the request to their organization often successfully. If you're looking to do that, I'd recommend that. It is linked up in the episode notes as well. And of course, it'll be in this week's weekly leadership guide also. If you haven't already, I'm inviting you to set up your free membership. That's going to give you access to the entire library of episodes since 2011, when I first began airing episodes, all sorted by topic, finance and budget. It's one of the many topic areas, many more episodes we've done on this. Beyond this, also from the professional side, too. How do we think about budgets in our conversations inside of the workplace? Many episodes on that. Set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. It's going to give you access to all of those past episodes searchable by topic. So you can track down exactly what you're looking for right now, as well as all the other benefits inside of the free membership. And perhaps you have had your free membership set up for a bit and you're looking for a little bit more. You may want to look at Coaching for Leaders Plus. 
Coaching for Leaders Plus has several additional benefits. One of them is access to the recordings of our monthly expert chats. And I'm thinking about that because Jill was one of the guests on our past expert chats. We got together with her live with a number of our members on a panel, asked questions of her live. We talked through personal finance. That recording's available as part of Coaching for Leaders Plus, as is each month. Uh, I'm sitting down with several of our members to have a live Q&A with a number of our guest experts who've been on the podcast. We share those recordings as part of Coaching for Leaders Plus. So if you'd like access to that, just go over to coachingforleaders.plus. That's a quick shortcut to be able to get there. You'll find all the benefits of membership in Coaching for Leaders Plus. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Maura Aarons Mealy to the show. She is going to be talking with us about how to release a bit of control. It's one of the challenges so many of us have in leadership. How do we give up a bit of the control that we tend to have? Moore and I are going to have a conversation about that next week. Join us for that on Monday, and I wish you a wonderful week. Take care.